All right. Well, I'm supposed to be uh, Reed this morning, so I have boundless energy and way more excitement than you could ever imagine. I'm on 12 cups of coffee already. Uh, doesn't that guy have a lot of energy? He has a lot of fun. So I don't mean to like throw him under the bus, but I'm going to throw him under the bus. Uh, driving home last night on vacation, my wife and I are driving back, and it's around 10.30 at night, and usually I go to bed by 10, but you know, we're driving home, and we, I get a phone call from Patrick. So naturally, if your boss calls you, you ignore it, which I did. Um, <laughs> don't want to hear about it. So he, he called, and then there was like a, the phone did some other action, and he called again. And I'm like, okay, maybe I should answer. So I answer, and he says, Reed is sick. We're not going to go into details, but Reed's really sick. You need to be prepared to preach tomorrow morning. And I'm like, ha, resident joke. Got it. Good one. <laughs> right? Uh, so I, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll be ready. So I you know, read through the manuscript once or whatever and went to bed going, there's no way Reed, boundless energy, is not going to be ready to go rock and roll in the morning. Well, this morning, Reed texted me. He was like, yeah, I'm not going to make it. And all night I dreamed, like, oh, Nathan and Reed showed up. I was all nervous, and they preached, and it was fine, and no big deal. And here I am up here, so <laughs> here we go. <laughs> we're going we're to do our best. Uh, honestly, though, it's an exciting story. I really feel like uh, this morning I get to take a step back, and we get to study the story together and let the Word of the Lord do the talking. So I'm excited to do that with you. I'm excited to open God's Word and to, to learn from it. So would you uh, begin with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you that your word does go forth, that your word is proclaimed to the nations. Lord, that you cross boundaries, that you, that you use us. Lord, thank you. Lord, I pray this morning that your word would be spoken. I pray that your word would be active. I pray that we would be able to have our hearts softened and to receive uh, the word of the Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you've, uh, if you've been with us, we've been studying Ahab versus Elijah, uh, God versus Baal, good versus evil, um, and today we actually get to have that, that cage fight finally happen, right? Today is the day where they're going to go at it, and we're going to see who wins. And uh, this story has been, it's been a lot of interesting things about it. Maybe some of the things to kind of recap for us is the first week we learned there's real evil going on in Israel, right? There's real evil going on. The God should be worshipped alone in Israel. They're his chosen people. And rather than worshipping God alone, they've brought in Baals and Asherahs, other gods, other idols, and they've worshipped them. And not only are these idols harm, harmful to them, but it's, it's harmful to the people around them. There's all sorts of sick practices taking place, such as child sacrifice and cult prostitution. And there's, there's just a lot of wickedness and evil and distortion which is occurring. And the Lord loves his people. And he desires that they should come to him. So what does he do? He sends a prophet to speak on his behalf. And he says, it's not going to rain until I say so. And then symbolically and physically, the word of the Lord leaves Israel and crosses boundaries and goes somewhere else. And it's gonna, people are like, what? Did the word of the Lord leave? Like Yahweh has left our area? What are we doing? And the word goes and it brings, brings the word to others. And God reaches out and cares for the least of these. And this week, we're going to see the word of the Lord comes back. And we're going to have this showdown between God and Baal. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to do a lot of reading. Um, 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to read it together, we're going to discuss it, and then at the end we're going to spend some time with some application and talk about what it means for us. So 1 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go 
Show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. So again, we have, we've got the word of the Lord entering into the picture, telling Elijah what to do, and Elijah acts in obedience. He goes forward back. And there's kind of a tension here the author is trying to raise because the word of the Lord uh, left Israel, and part of the purpose of leaving was to make the people jealous for the Lord, to make them realize of their sin and to repent. And upon their repentance, the Lord would bring rain again. Like the, 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 the drought isn't just a punishment. The, the, the drought is actually to urge God's people back into covenant relationship with him. And yet, that hasn't occurred, right? There's been no repentance. I mean, the, the foreigners are believing and they're following Yahweh, but the people of Israel, they're still stuck in their sin. And yet we have the word of the Lord going back to Israel. And the question is kind of like, why? They haven't done anything. They don't deserve it. What's Yahweh doing? And that's the tension we're supposed to be wrestling with. Why is Yahweh sending the word back to undeserving people? And for starting in verse 3. And Ahab called Obadiah, called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided up the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. So we kind of, we have the word of the Lord commanding Elijah to go back to the people and then we kind of move scenes and we find Ahab and his uh, lead right-hand man, Obadiah. And just in case you're like me, I was like, Obadiah, isn't that not like a book in the Bible or something? Like, you know, kind of looking it up. Different Obadiah. So we're good to go. Um, so Obadiah is there. He's the right-hand man. And kind of, kind of the irony here is Obadiah is the right-hand man of Ahab, and Obadiah is a believer in Yahweh. And Ahab can't even feed his horses. Like right now he's out looking for water, looking for grass to feed his horses and his mules. And he's hoping just to save some of the animals. Not even all of them. Just I want to save a few of my horses. Um, which is a sign of power to be able to have the horses and be able to have a cavalry. But anyway, he's, so he's trying to just save anything. And yet the right-hand man is able to save God's people. God is providing for his prophets bread and water. They are sustained. Ahab can do nothing, right? Here it is, God continually providing Baal, not being able to do anything. There's the irony, right, going on. So they divide up. They go in different directions. They're looking for water. Verse 7. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone and found you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you on to I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, I cannot find, he cannot find you. He will kill me. Even though I am your, I have been a servant who has feared the Lord from my youth. 
Has it not been that I have told the Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid hundred men in the Lord's, of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and fed them with water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me? Right? So you, you, get, you get this story here. Obadiah sees Elijah. He recognizes him. And Elijah says, hey, go tell your boss I'm here. And he's like, are you kidding? He's going to kill me because every time this happens, you go somewhere else. And then the people who, they're killed. Like, I've been a faithful follower of Yahweh. Why would you do this to me? Setting the stage. This is a big deal. He's around. And, uh, and yet Elijah tells him, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely so show myself to him a day today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. All right, so the pieces are kind of being moved on the chessboard. Things are starting to take place. Elijah's come back. The word of the Lord is here. We're going to meet Ahab. What's going to happen? What's going to go down? Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled answer, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. It's, again, we see some irony, because Ahab sees Elijah, he walks up to him and kind of shouts at him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? Kind of like, this is your fault, you're the reason there's all this famine. And ironic, because who was in charge of caring for the people? King Ahab, who was in charge of leading the people according to the word of the Lord and obeying the statutes of the Lord and making sure that the very first of the Ten Commandments, like love the Lord your God and him alone and make no other idols before you, like that's the role of the king. The king is the protector of the people. And yet he's abandoned all that. He's brought in Baals and Asherahs. He's brought in foreign, foreign religion. And the people are suffering because of Ahab. And yet, what does he do when he sees Elijah? Blames Elijah. Kind of like what we do, right? When we're caught in trouble, we shift the blame somewhere else. We, we don't see it. And yet Elijah says, no, this is you. This is your fault. Get together all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah and who eat at Jezebel's table, and we're going we're gonna to have a contest. So verse 20. And Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and they gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now, if you've been, if you had the privilege of going to Israel, uh, Mount Carmel is right next to the sea. It's in northern Israel, and there's some valleys near it. It's very beautiful, and it's a very prominent place. It's one of the the highest place around, and you can you can see a lot. It's a great place to have a cage fight, right? So let's throw these gods in there, and let's see who comes out and who wins. That's Okay, very bad description, but that's, that's what the people are going to do. They're all going to gather, and they're going to come in. They're going to say, who's actually God of Israel? Is it God Yahweh, or is it Baal? Who's going to win? So, here we go. 21, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, this Baal, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, 
the God of Israel, who answers by fire, he is God. I'm sorry, and whoever answers by fire, he, fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. All right, so here's, it kind of seems strange to us. We're kind of like, so how are they deciding who's God? Right, so they go on top of, the, on top of Mount Carmel, where all the people can be able to see. And Elijah has uh, two altars set up. And uh, you have to understand that prophets, kind of the prophets of Baal, one of the things they did is they were supposed to be a prophet in the ancient Near East, was supposed to, to speak the word. And how they, uh, how they did that is they would, they would give a prof- prophecy, but then they could kind of say whatever they wanted, right? They could abuse power. They'd be like, oh, I'm the prophet, and I say, give me all your money. And then how would the people know any differently? So there were rules kind of set up of how a prophet should function. So if a prophet spoke on behalf of the Lord, then he also had to have a sign. He had to have something to prove that his word is true. And if that word that he spoke and that he claimed to speak on behalf of the Lord was not true and it didn't, the sign did not follow and come to pass, then that prophet was to be killed, right? To keep false prophets from, from manipulating and hurting innocent people, right? So there's the idea. So they're essentially doing a sign right now. Who's the real God? Who, what's what's going to happen? So... We're both going to claim and ask for a sign, ask for a miracle, right? And the one who answers, that's the real God. The ones who don't, not so much. And so that's what these prophets are doing. They're gathering together. They have two altars set up, and they're going to put a sacrifice. Each call out to their God and see which God answers. And we've already seen in the story that God... Yahweh is one who has established Elijah as a true prophet. He's, he's already done miracles of feeding for the widow, of raising the widow's son back to life. So the Lord has already been establishing Elijah as a prophet. But now we're going to see him versus the prophets of Baal. God versus Baal. We're going to see who wins. So with this, with this all set up, um, the people agreed. They said it's well spoken. Verse 25 then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon... Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and, and must be awakened. Right? You guys caught the humor, right? Elijah's literally mocking them. Talk about bathroom humor in the Bible. There it is. He's saying, well, I mean, if you're God, he's a real god. I mean, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's you know, doing something else. You just need to scream louder. After they've already been doing this for four hours. He's mocking them. And so they cried aloud, and they cut themselves, as was their customs, with swords and lances, until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Right? Despite the cries of these prophets, despite all sorts of these practices, which we can even see a little hint here of some of the, some of the evil they were doing, this, this manipulative, twisted cutting of themselves, thinking that God would hear them more because they harmed themselves, similar to like how they would do child sacrifices and other things. Anything they could do in their minds to get God's attention. So that's what they're doing. They're going at it. No one's answering. Elijah's mocking them from morning until night. They go at it. 
and there is no answer. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob, whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering of the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So Elijah's constructed, you know, his, his altar. And I wanted to do that for you this morning. I wanted to come in here and build this and then, like, maybe set it on fire. But Patrick's like, not a good idea. So we, we don't have an altar. But imagine he's got his 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. This is to remind the people of Israel. This is your God who called you, who formed you, who made you, who gave you the name Israel. Like, this is, this is who you are, reminding them of where they came from. And he builds the altar, and he sets it up, and he gets the sacrifice ready. And then, in the middle of a drought, he asks for large jars of water. Right? This is a precious resource. And as he takes that water and four jars of it, big jars, probably taking several men to be able to lift, and poured it on the altar and got it wet. Now, for all of you who are Boy Scouts out there, you know, like the number one rule of starting a fire, well, there's probably not a lot of rules, but one of them is you've got to have, like, dry wood. If the wood's wet, you're not getting very far, right? Elijah's making it clear. This is no man-made fire that will appear. And he doesn't do it just once. He does it twice. He does it a third time. Like, this is final. This is it. The wood is wet. The water, the water is rushing out for, or filled up around the trenches. This thing is soaked. It's not catching fire. Is the Lord able to answer? And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God and Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and have turned their hearts back. I want to pause there for a moment. We start to see, I'd say, that most important verse here in this story. Like, what, what's going on? Like, what's the point of this? And we see Elijah saying, the purpose of this is that they may know you are God. Right? These signs, these miracles, they're the point and, and point and show that the Lord is God. And we even saw this with the miracles earlier when Elijah healed the, uh, raised the widow's son back to life and the widow said, now I know, it's the same phrase here, that they may know that you are the Lord. This is being done so that people say, the Lord alone is God. And then even reading a little further, it said, because the Lord, verse 37, you have turned their hearts back. We see that this is God who's initiating in this story. Right? The people haven't done anything. They don't deserve to have Yahweh come back. The word of the Lord is, has been absent. It doesn't deserve to come back. They're running off in their own evil ways. And yet the Lord seeks them out to draw them to repentance. The Lord comes. And the purpose is they may know him, not so he can punish them, but so that he can restore his covenant relationship 
with them. We have a God who loves relentlessly. Verse 38. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Right? And then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. We see the Lord answering with fire. Yes, the Lord can respond. Yes, the Lord is able to answer. And, you know, the next part of those verses, honestly, I'd rather skip over. And Reed was supposed to have to explain it to you why people are being slaughtered, not me, but here we go. Um, I probably won't be able to answer it adequately, but I want to give a few thoughts here. One is, remember the role of prophets, right? They're supposed to proclaim the word of the Lord, and if they're false prophets and their signs aren't being met, then they, they deserve death, right? They've been leading the people astray. Um, and another thought is, even though we're sitting there and we're looking at it and it's kind of like, wow, we're, we're, we're killing these men, slaughtering them. That seems really harsh. And it is. But isn't that also what they deserve? Isn't that also what Ahab deserves? Isn't it also what the people of Israel deserve? Isn't it also what we deserve? Right? We don't deserve to be in relationship with God. These prophets have been following sick practices, harmful things, the, the, the sacrifice of children, all sorts of corrupt things, and they've been leading the people astray to where they are no longer following God. And now they're getting what they deserve. And yet, what we see in this story is not God's justice, but rather God's mercy. All the people deserve punishment, just like those prophets. The people of Israel deserve it, even Elijah. We don't see it fully in this story. You can kind of catch a couple of glimpses of it, but he's not perfect. He makes, he's made a, makes several mistakes. Even here, you kind of hear it in his voice, almost like he's whining when he said, I am the only prophet left, and Baal has 450. And we, we know there's other prophets. There's other people serving Yahweh. Get over your pity case, Elijah, right? So he's, he's not doesn't have it all together either. Like, we're deserving of not being in relationship with God. Yet rather than giving us what we deserve, we see a merciful and loving God seeking his people, seeking to draw them to himself. And we continue to see that in the verses that follow. Verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. And Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up and look toward the sea. And he went up to look and said, there is nothing. And Elijah said, go again, seven times. And so you can kind of um, picture this scene. I mean, I mean it's got to be exhausting for Elijah, right? I mean, called down fire, this giant display of God's power, consuming the, fire, the altar. Everything was gone. There was nothing left. It was a clear display of God's power. I mean, even as we think about this story, if you got to be at any Old Testament story, this had to be one of the best stories. I mean, the parting of the Red Sea would be pretty cool, but this would also be like, can you imagine being there, seeing that fire come, take everything away? Like this great mountaintop experience, if you will, where God has answered, God has proven he is the Lord and Baal is nothing. And Elijah goes up on top and he waits and he's looking to see rain. And he promises that rain will come. 
And the rain is not supposed to come until the word says it will. And now he's saying it's going to rain. And yet he goes up there and he waits and he sends a servant up and I don't see anything. So he sends a waits and he sends a servant up again. I don't see anything. Seven times he's waiting on the Lord who said he's going to send rain. Is he? I mean, Lord, Yahweh answered by fire, but is he going to be able to provide rain? Will the rain come? Baal couldn't make it rain. Can Yahweh? And the seventh time after saying this, the servant said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And Elijah said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariots and go down, lest the rain stop you. In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode back and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The Lord answers the Lord provides rain. Not only does the Lord provide fire, not only does the Lord cross over boundaries, not over, only does the Lord bring life and defeat death, right? The Lord now is making it rain just like he promised. And this, this whole cosmic cage fight idea has been a joke, right? Bill didn't even show up. There, he hasn't, nothing. They cried out to him and no one answered. But yet Yahweh responds, and again, the point of this story, the point of this here is to see the Lord's provision, but also to see the Lord relentlessly loving his people, seeking them out even though they don't deserve it, loving them, calling them to repentance, revealing himself mercifully to them. Okay, well, if that's the point, I want to spend some time thinking through, well, okay, really cool story, but what does that mean for us? What, is, what does that look like for you and me sitting here today? What would be some takeaways that we have? And I'm going to ask several questions and love to have you wrestle with these questions. First question, is God your everything? Is God your everything? You see, the people of Israel, what they were actually guilty of was not abandoning God completely, but rather of saying God and Baal, God and Asherah, right? They, they believed in the God of Israel, but they wanted other things to protect them, to provide security, to give them status, to offer significance. They were looking for other things besides God to complete them. And we look at them and we go, boy, they were dumb. They, they had their cake and they wanted to eat it too. And they were worshiping like dumb idols that don't even exist. In fact, there's even, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture, but there's several passages in some Psalms and Isaiah where they talk about the foolishness of idolatry, where someone comes and cuts down a tree and brings in wood and carves the wood into an image and sets the idol up on his mantelpiece to pray to it. And then with the leftover wood, he throws some in a fire and burns, burns and makes, uh, makes fire to eat with his food and makes a walking stick. And they're like, really? You're going to make a God and it's going to be a walking stick or an idol on your thing? Like, how dumb are you? Right? And that's, that's what the people of Israel have done. They've made for themselves these idols. And we look at them and we go, good thing, we'd never do that. But an idol isn't just a wooden thing we put on top of our mantle place. An idol is anything that we're looking at and we say, God and something else. That something else is an idol. God and the security of having my 401k being built up. God and the security of my emergency fund. Or God and having people like me. Or whatever it might be for you, and maybe pause for a moment and think through, what, what do I look for to offer me security, to make me feel safe, to offer me status, to feel important? Right, what, what are those things that we look to besides God or in addition to and alongside God? Because it's probably easy, it is easy for me 
say, oh, I'm going to church, I'm doing this, I believe in God, but yet in the practical day-to-day applications, when rain isn't coming and when I'm nervous, well, God's not answering me, what else am I going to look to to care for me? And that's what these people did too. It must be God alone that we look to. Because if God is anything, he must be everything. If God is anything, he must be everything. If God actually exists, if he's actually real, if he's, if he's real and he is who he says he is, he needs to be our everything. So then that kind of brings up the thought of, well, does he deserve to be our everything? Maybe the next questions will help us with that. The next question I have for you, can your God hear you? Can your God hear you? People cried out to Baal. They did all sorts of things. They thought by sacrificing this, by doing that, right? By even sacrificing children and other stories. This will make God answer. We can manipulate God into hearing us. But we see that God doesn't hear them. Baal doesn't doesn't answer them. And the same thing the things that we look for and we trust besides God, do they answer us? I mean, has money ever talked back to you? And if it has, we, we might have some other things to talk about. But can success talk back to you? Can they answer you as you cry out to them? Just as Baal was empty and silent, so also are the many things that we look to besides God to, to meet our needs, to tell us that we're worth it, to tell us we're good enough. But you know what we're told in Scripture is we have a God who hears. Not only do we have a God who hears, we have a God who answers. So my third question for you is, can your God answer? Can your God answer? Baal doesn't answer, and you know, the jokes in the Scripture are meant to point out how ludicrous this is, right? They're crying out to a God that doesn't answer them. And in the same way, what are the things that we look to to answer our needs and they don't? I'm going to read something for you. It says, in the end, whatever we... We give our lives to, whether it be to seek pleasure, relationships, our work, children. We fail to speak the words. Those things will fail to speak the words we long to hear. Our careers can never tell us we're good enough. There will always be someone better looking than us or more beautiful than we are. There will always be someone with better behaved kids. These idols, these things that we are looking for to tell us we've made it, we're good enough, we're secure, we're, we're important, they don't answer us. But yet we strive after them, grasping like dust in the wind. But we have a God who does answer us. Yahweh answered with fire and with water. So maybe my next question for you, can your God make you new? Can your God make you new? When you see the prophets of Baal, after they did all this work, after they sacrificed everything, after they sought after these false gods, trying to move up the ladder in their careers, or whatever it might be, they were left spent with nothing left. And for us, these things, these worthless idols that we pursue and we think will bring us something, they don't. They leave us empty and exhausted at the end of it. There is no renewal. But yet Yahweh, he transforms us. He takes our brokenness, and restores us. That's the picture we saw in this story, right? The people were broken, and yet he sought after them to bring them to repentance. (laughs) Even God doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us. He turns us back to himself, even when we are running away from him. Thank God for his mercy. And that's my final question for us this morning. Can your God forgive you 
Can your God forgive you? Because ultimately, that's what this story is pointing to, right? It's pointing to Jesus. Mount Carmel to Mount Calvary, right? The prophet Elijah speaking on behalf of of the Lord to the word of the Lord made flesh who dwelt among us. To God's wrath being poured out upon an altar, upon the sacrifice, on behalf of the people, to God's wrath being poured out upon the cross, upon the sacrifice of Jesus. This is where the story is going. Is Jesus, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Has he forgiven you? That is what we're, that is what the story is pointing to and pointing toward. I'm just like to, as I've, as I've been wrestling with these texts for a little bit, it has been interesting to me to see how I often, this is, this is me, pursue other things besides God. God and something else to bring me these things. And yet what I'm amazed at about this story is God doesn't look at that and then just punish me. God looks at that and with love says, I want to bring you back. I'm not going to let it rain so that you are jealous and you come back to me. I'm going to send you signs of the fire and the altar so you come back to me. I'm going to seek you even as you run from me. Just if that's you out there this morning, and if there's thoughts of, wow, I'm running from God, or I'm making something else an idol, and I'm pursuing something else to complete me, God is lovingly calling you to himself. God is calling you to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it crosses boundaries, that it reveals itself to us. Lord, that you reveal yourself to us, that you are the word. Lord, we thank you for your mercy in pursuing us. Lord, we see what we deserve (laughs) in stories like this. Lord, thank you for these stories that we can hear and we can listen to and we can learn from. And then also, Lord, thank you for the power of how that can convict us and let us see where we are and we are broken by our own sin. Lord, I pray that as that brokenness comes, Lord, that it would draw us to you. Lord, as we seek idols, as we seek to add anything besides you to make us feel worth it, to make us feel complete, to make us feel safe and secure, Lord, I pray that you continue to reveal those idols to us and to show us how worthless they are and to draw us to you. Thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice. It's in his name we pray, amen. And as we think about this morning, if you're like me and it's it's kind of cool, because what are my steps forward? There's some... There's some sadness over the way I pursue idols, um, yet there's some thankfulness for God's grace to me. Well, just as we saw the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, and we see the sacrifice at the cross, so our benediction, our good word for the road, is going to point us to the sacrifice that we, we are called to give as believers. So receive now the benediction. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that, the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen. Go in peace.